Nice. <laughs> Asshole. <laughs> Overthinking It Podcast, episode 10. Our last podcast was on indie, and that was, I think, almost a month ago. Uh, but we're back now. I am Matt Rather, and I am here with from Boston, Peter Fenzel. How you doing, Pete? I'm doing great. Doing great, Matt. Hey, Pete. Uh, have you ever danced with the devil by the pale moonlight? Yeah, we did that thing where you slow dance at arm's length, like in an eighth grade dance. I I always I ask that of all my podcasters. <laughs> I I just like the sound of it. <laughs> Do you know? Does that line come from the comic books, Pete? I don't know. I mean, I, I know of it first from the the uh, Tim Burton movies, right. obviously, um, and the Bible, of course. Um, when when Adam dances with the devil in the pale moonlight in the Lost Book of Genesis. <laughs> yeah, I think that I really like the way Milton sort of revises that yeah. episode <laughs> in book in book three yeah. A of Paradise Lost. Exactly. Uh, also coming in uh, from. From New York City, Jordan Stokes, how are you? I'm doing very well. I've, uh, I've never danced with the devil in the pale moonlight, but I have played this town like a harp from hell. <laughs> wow. And with me here in New Haven, Connecticut, is Ryan Sheely. I generally tend to only dance with the devil in the hot African sun. Um... <laughs> Ryan Sheely, who's missed several podcasts because he has been in Nairobi, Kenya. And actually... More, uh, um, I've actually found that uh, it's easier to c- get in there from uh, from Nairobi than from St. Louis. So, <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, Ryan, how'd you make out in the power sharing agreement? You know, I, we, we got I got a little less than I was looking for, but we're, we still have a seat at the table. So that oh, good, you know, good, good. Uh, the way the Cajun politics go, you can always branch that out. It'll be great. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's excellent. All right, so uh, incredible things have happened on the blog. We had a bumper week. Uh, with uh, three of our posts making it to the front page of IMDb. So if you are a new listener to the podcast, welcome. We're very glad to have you. Overthinkingit.com is the blog that subjects the popular culture to a level of scrutiny that it probably doesn't deserve. And uh, our podcast uh, extends that mission, essentially, but we all do it at the same time. You know, it's 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 less of a it's less of a solitary overthinking and more of an overthinking clusterfuck. But of clusterfucking surrounds us. <laughs> it's a quiet, very meditative clusterfuck. There's a lot of spooning involved. It's kind of a tantric clusterfuck. <laughs> anyway, what do you guys think? Of, what do you guys think of the the phenomenon? <laughs> uh, sweeping the nation, man. Sweeping the nation. Everyone's overthinking it. It's crazy. Yeah, man, we're you know, bad you're seeing bad like... <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, we're bigger than, uh, you know, this, I mean, if it weren't for the fact that Manny Ramirez had just been traded, everyone in Boston would be talking about this right now. Uh, I think it's, uh, I think it's wonderful. <laughs> I think that it's, um, it's clearly going to, to continue to happen forever. 
And I've borrowed against that. I mean, I've already spent the ad revenue through uh, the next two years. I'm currently podcasting from a solid gold hot tub. Uh, <laughs> Mostly I'm just glad that people – I hope people liked it. I hope people read it and, and then they enjoyed it and they appreciated you know, how hard we worked on it and stuff. But also just that they liked it and that you know, in their search for whatever it is they're out there searching for on the internet, they found a little piece of it in our backyard. Right. So. And it's interesting because I mean, this also this week also uh, marked uh, six weeks or six months of us doing this blog, right? And, and and you know, I think while there definitely has been um, an upward trend in the sort of quality of of the writing, you know, and or you know, us finding our voice and, and the audience. rhythm and an audience, yeah. But it, it is interesting to say it says something about the idiosyncratic uh, ways of what catches on in the internet, and it's hard to predict that because we've you know we've we've definitely made bids for. We've made greater bids for virality. You know, we've made the, the Hillary Clinton, uh, uh, Hillary Clinton video. Uh, one of the earliest things that we did, even before this was a blog, was a Anna Nicole Smith tribute video, which we both, you know, made with the intent of this is going to be fucking huge, and and it really did very little. And so it's a it's a interesting testament to the the, the sort of unpredictable unpredictable ways of the internet as to what. Yeah, apparently, uh, apparently, what America really wants right now is Schopenhauer. Who would have thunk it? I, I encourage anyone who wants to learn more about this to read uh, Nasir Taleb's excellent The Black Swan, which is about how poor Gaussian distribution is at, at predicting the likelihood of events. Um, if you had, had looked at sort of the normal distribution of how many people come to the blog, uh, you wouldn't have caught any of these things or expected they would have happened. Now, of course, the blog is a very minor thing, and, and that applies more to things like the massive collapse of the credit system and all that other stuff. But uh, <laughs> We were actually behind that as well. I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think no, luckily not enough people listen to us that that's going to out us too badly. But like you know, just a little secret: we we were part of that. Um... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're, uh, uh, Ra- Ryan's rap name is Freddie Mac. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Booyakasha. <laughs> well, yeah, it's you know there are tons. I don't know if you've looked at this on the internet, but I have since we've been running a blog. There are tons of really webcock douchebags out there telling you how to like how to monetize your content you know on the uh, and create passive income a passive income muse and i think that this is a testament to the fact that like if you really write what you care about you will find an audience it's the every for every ass there's a toilet seat uh (laughs) So, IMDb listeners, you are our toilet seat. Thank you very much for tuning God. in. I, I think you guys, are, you guys are getting a little high on the horse right now. Let's. We had a couple of nice articles, and a couple of people got to link them around. Like, let's give the people what they came for. Let's give them a little entertainment. All right, let's let's, uh, let's let's jump into it because what was on all of our minds this week was the um, was the Dark Knight movie. And I just want to throw uh, throw open a question to – I mean it's been extensively reviewed and if you have not seen it, stop listening to this podcast now because from here on we have no bones – we make no bones about spoiling all the surprises uh, that the movie has in store. And it's really a movie actually with a plot that you couldn't – it wasn't totally formulaic. There were actually twists and turns that worked. I think. It turns out that Batman and Bruce Wayne are the same guy. No. God damn it. You should have waited until the end of the spoiler alert to, uh, <laughs> to do that. Do you realize so, what, now, now the Gotham City water supply is doomed. Yeah, <laughs> it's horrible. Yeah. 
Um, is this a is this movie? So let me just throw a question open to the panel. Is this movie? In what ways does this movie sort of continue? A great deal has been made about how this is kind of a rebooting of the franchise, and you know Christopher Nolan's new vision of Batman. In what ways is this is this movie sort of continuous with the the Batman franchise as as it's existed up to this point in comics on TV in the campy sixties series and various animated incarnations and then sort of different graphic novelizations of the Batman thing. And then the, the cinema, the cinema franchise started by Tim Burton. I mean, what, what do we make of all of that? Well, I mean, I think that, um, well, you go through and you track it and, uh, you definitely see the evolution. I mean, I, I think that, you know, the, the Dark Knight is going to draw natural parallels and natural comparisons with the Frank Miller work, right? The stuff from the mid-80s, uh, Batman Year One, which comes after that. And there's a certain element of that. Uh, there you get the brutality. You get a lot of the um, the, the sort of uh, – if you think about Heath Ledger's makeup, if you think about the sort of way that the, the flesh is textured and some of the visuals, which I think is an important part of the overall aesthetic. I think that you see some of that in Miller's work, the sort of the lines and, and the way that he composes some of the images. Um, I mean personally, in terms of the evolution, I think that the, the evolution of Batman, the movies are a little bit overrated. I mean the Tim Burton movie is very important in terms of being a cultural phenomenon. But for me, if you want to look to the real rebooting of Batman, the real sort of thing that brings it out of the legacy of the 60s, which I mean we can go back and talk about that too – you got to start with the animated series. You got to start with mm -hmm. Batman the animated series back in the early and mid 90s. Um you got to start uh back then with uh with, where you've got the the inking of the everything was inked on black paper, right? You, so there's this precondition of everything going to be dark, everything's going to be iconic. Um this sort of art deco feel to it. Um Gotham is this sort of 40s brought into the present. Um, you know, and I think you see a lot of that in Tim Burton and a lot of Tim Burton in that. Um, they even use Tim Burton's music, right? So there's a partnership with it, but of course he, they put out a lot more episodes, a lot more mm -hmm. material. Um, and I think that if you want to look at uh, a performance of Batman that heavily shapes uh, Christian Bale's performance of Batman, uh, look at Kevin Conroy. You know, look at Kevin Conroy and the way he voiced Batman for three years and then for years after that and things like Justice League. And you'll see the sort of the, the gruff – the gruff Batman who talks like this, and then Bruce Wayne, who's sort of more um, stately and elegant as he, and graceful as he walks what around. What do you think about the voice? The voice made me want to clear my throat every time I heard it. <laughs> I thought the effect on it was a little extreme. I thought the processing was a little extreme, and I thought he talked too much. I thought it was overused. Mm. Well, I mean, I think DMX makes me want to clear my throat. Is that correct? Or did I miss... Uh, <laughs> I mean, I a little more David Banner, but um, yeah. <laughs> okay, it's, sorry. It's, I guess... Who is that? Who is that song? That's like the only thing that they. That's DJ do. Cool, Pete. Uh, oh, DJ Cool. Ah, uh, I'm terrible. All right. Um, but but DMX, uh, just from the way he's. Why was DMX? That's ridiculous. <laughs> he's, he's someone who needs to clear his throat. You, you've completed the. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, I agree, I agree with you, man. I think the voice is pretty. The voice is pretty bad. the The voice of Batman was pretty bad. Um, the way that it was used was pretty flat. I mean, Bale as Batman in the costume is probably one of the least important parts of a really excellent movie, but still, I didn't like it so much. I don't know. What do you guys think? I, I was kind of – I think it's a little bit silly whenever I hear it. I think, like, is that a little overdone? At the same time, one of the things that sort of sets these movies apart from the, um, the Tim Burton ones is that 
I mean, you don't exactly call it realism because it's still a superhero movie, but there's a certain bit for the realistic. And you kind of think, okay, so this is actually a guy who's dressing up like a bat and beating criminals up. He's probably going to put on like a scary monster voice. You know, it sort of makes sense. That's probably how he would actually talk. See, I just thought that that was actually more his way of like further uh, disguising his identity. It's like if he spoke in his normal voice, everybody like, hey, wait, you sound a lot like Bruce Wayne. But when he like does this weird, growly, distorted thing, it's just like he's putting the, the bat mask over his vocal cords. It does remind me of the time that I had to play Jigger in a high school musical version of Carousel, uh, which is like the you have to play the villain from the, the, the 40s musical who talks like this all the time. You know, evil, scary people talk with scratchy voices. I feel like Batman should have had really dark eyebrows penciled in over like the bat suit. Actually, I think he probably did, right? What happens to Jigger? Does, does Jigger just, just, you know, peace out after Billy kills the guy? Yeah, yeah, he does. <laughs> he just like he's like see ya. There's, there's murder. I encourage everyone in, who's listening to the podcast who hasn't seen or heard Carousel, which might be a pretty big subset of the people listening to the car- podcast. That if you're looking for a Rodgers and Hammerstein musical, to listen to you could do worse. But uh, enough of that. <laughs> you could do worse. Perhaps also you could do better. However, though, that's possible. You know, that's possible. Though, now Pete and I will perform a medley of songs <laughs> from Rodgers and Hammerstein's Carousel. I loved you. Wait, can we do the one with domestic violence? (laughs) Please, please start with "Looks like a real fine clam bake." (laughs) (laughs) That's dirty. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah. So Christian Bale as badass as badass Batman, totally different from Adam West in 1966. Mm, This is true. Substantially different, yes. Yeah, I mean, he's not. It's not as much of a detective, right? He doesn't really spend as much time trying to track the movements of the people that he's going after. Right? And there's no. There's no mystery. Everyone knows. It's kind of weird because everyone knows what's going wrong. Yeah. You know. I mean, I think that that's sort of parallel to um, the sort of Tom Clancyization of America, right? Where we have this assumption that the authorities can see everything, and it's simply a matter of where they're capable of exercising their will in accordance with the things the, the and I don't mean the will in the Schopenhauer sense. I'm putting that aside for now, but like, where can you bring power because of the things that are holding you back politically? Like, where right. can Batman actually go and do things? Where should Batman go and do things based on the sort of way that the city works, not like based on what he's able to figure out? You know, it's, and there's a uh, different there's a different I'm sorry, I'm going to throw it over to Ryan because this is really your area in a a second. But, like, there's a different assumption. The assumption of the detective Batman is that order is the natural state of things. And when crime occurs, it's a deviation from that. But the Gotham City that's presented in in The Dark Knight, in the Christopher Nolan Batman, and in some of the animated Batman, and maybe in some of the comic books, it could be argued, is, is one in which the social order is totally broken down in corruption both in the official government and in the unofficial government of organized crime, uh, is the order of the day. Well, and I think that's why there's, I think, a lot of really interesting parallels between The Dark Knight and the world of The Wire. Um, and, like, you know, one of the one of the parallels is that there uh, is... Are you going to use wire spoilers? Are there going to be wire spoilers here? Uh, it's about drug dealing and the surveillance of drug dealers. So, like, okay, that's fair. pretty much what I'm going to discuss. Uh, okay, I'm not okay, going to okay. talk about how...
dies in season five. So, what? Oh um, my god! <laughs> <laughs> I actually haven't seen season five, so that was already spoiled for me. So oh god! Oh dude! Oh really? Yeah, that shit got fucking spoiled. So I'm just passing that shit. Who told you? <laughs> so John Levin, if you're listening to this podcast, I'm really sorry for doing that to you. Um, Wait, Matt, Matt, can you bleep that out? Can you bleep out that spoiler? Please, I yeah, I really feel like I should edit that out. Who told you? And, who is uh, the douchebag? It was, it told was you? actually Vulture Blog. Vulture Blog. Oh New York God. Magazine, is they 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 put they ran an obituary an obituary for uh, uh, after that episode aired and you know, I read that blog every day so I, I saw it so it's okay I mean it was coming I figured it was only a matter of time to make sense for season five anyhow um, but you know what the way that did did you find no, out about the way that, okay so, good 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 because the way that goes out is just perfect and when you cool. see it it's gonna be it's gonna be awesome I didn't see the end of The Sopranos and so like for a while I was like tuning out all the blogs and things like that until I fucking read on Gawker the other day or something that um oh no in the fucking New York Times in the yeah. New York <laughs> Times fucking magazine that Tony <laughs> In the last season of The Sopranos. See, I've never seen a single episode of The Sopranos. That even doesn't even mean shit to me. It's so about I, it's about uh, no, the Itali- know, it's no, about no. A, the Italian American experience. Right. I'm sorry. Like, to, back to no, back yeah, to like, Gotham. Listen, like, I think we we have, <laughs> we have another wire so, podcast in us and a Sopranos podcast too. But what I was just going to say is, um, you know, what is similar in the world of The Wire and Dark Knight vis-a-vis the world of the the '60s Batman is in The Wire. You know, they know that the the Barksdale drug, drug gang. You know, they know that they are um, that they are selling drugs, and what they need to do is use surveillance equipment to actually collect this evidence. And but the difference between the world is that in the world of The Wire, they're very concerned with probable cause. They're very concerned with jurisdiction um, and uh, and what they can. You know. Like they would love to be able to, uh, uh, you know, use all the surveillance available to them, but but cannot due to certain legal and constitutional restrictions. Whereas the world of of the Dark Knight, you know, I mean, Batman's role is is that he transcends that as a vigilante. He can, you know, really do what what needs to be done. Um, and and that I mean, and that's an explicit plot point at the end with Morgan Freeman mm-hmm. and the the sort of warrantless wiretaps. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what a pussy, right? Because Morgan Freeman is like, this is. This is against the fiber of my being, my being. You know this. Uh, <laughs> what the hell was that? <laughs> that was that was my Morgan Freeman. I was trying to channel the Shawshank Redemption. You were trying to make it more black. What were you? That was not very nice. <laughs> <laughs> Morgan Freeman is black. Spoiler alert. <laughs> so right. Right, um, now I have to return my DVD of Chain Reaction. Thanks. <laughs> but it's right. He's like. Um, He's like, you know, oh, this is really wrong. I don't believe in this. I, you know, in fact, it's it's worth enough to me to resign my position, my, you know, cushy gig in this company where I get to make all kinds of cool bat toys. Okay, just this just once. once. Just once. This looks like fun. Yeah. Just, yeah, but, just once. Okay. You know, and that like, I, I guess this is to your point. This speaks to your point, Ryan, that like everyone, everyone sort of agrees that Batman has to disregard every institution and even a notional commitment to to law and order in the way that we would expect a civil society to have it well he's he's, he's basically like a cowboy he's basically like a western hero except he does it in the middle of the biggest city in the fictional country that he lives in right you know who's another hero who really disregards <laughs> Ryan just walked out of the room. I think Ryan, Ryan quit the podcast. I don't mean it in the same place because you can't do that. It means nothing when I'm in St. Louis. I 
Why do you show my utter disdain? <laughs> Jordan, yeah, so I think you wanted to. Hero who disregards subtle transitions is uh, is Jack Bauer. <laughs> and one of the things that I, I wrote down in my little hey, this is something we should talk about tonight is the Jack Bauerization of Batman. What do you mean by that? I think that uh, that what really sets this current Batman apart from the earlier editions of Batman is, uh, well, I mean, I guess he's always been a crime fighter who bends the law in that he's running around at night beating people up and trespassing a lot. Um, but at this point, he, is, he tends to be breaking the law in the same kind of way that uh, the Jack Bauer breaks the law. Um, people talk a lot about torture and that kind of thing and threatening witnesses. What really did it for me, though, is the scene where he... Um, goes into Hong Kong and kidnaps a Chinese citizen using a CIA spy plane technique. Yeah. That, that was a, a really strange moment when I was sitting in the theater. It was, it was an extraordinary rendition, right? It is, mm, it yeah. is, but it's not being performed by... That, that is to say, like one of the interesting things about Batman is that he arrogates to himself certain powers that we normally think of as being reserved for sovereign states. Well, I mean, but not only <laughs> reserved... <laughs> Reserved for, but like usually, you know, we think of only states are those; they're the only entity that are, are capable of doing such things, right? You know, so um, and so, and they're specifically forbidden from it by a lot of agreements and things, right? <laughs> whether whether or not at the present moment we disregard a lot of that, you know, a lot of that shit. I think Ross Perot though didn't Ross Perot stage a commando mission at some point earlier in his career. I think when he was like an oil businessman some people of his went in missing in the middle east and instead of sitting around like jimmy carter that pussy he uh <laughs> <laughs> he was brave like like reagan and sold arms to the contras <laughs> <laughs> he manned the fuck up yeah. and uh you know i'm no wikipedia ross perot while I'm we're doing talking that right now what do you i mean what do you make of it jordan does it reflect a, a sort of a the changing you know political context I think, it, yeah, it, uh, it reflects the changing political context. I feel like this movie, I'm not sure if it actually has a message about terrorism, but it likes to kind of remind you that there's this uh, this global contact conflict uh, between terrorists and non-terrorists, uh, and that this kind of stuff is going on, or people think about doing this kind of stuff, you know? Um, As a little bit of a digression, you know, it's interesting because uh, earlier in the summer we talked about Iron Man in a very similar context and as being, you know, the first, like, very definitively post-9-11 superhero movie. So how would you, like, uh, compare and contrast the treatment of of these themes in Iron Man versus The Dark Knight? Well, I mean, first thing I would bring up is that the the extra national power that comes to both Iron Man and to uh, Batman— is parallel to the extension of the power of multinational corporations over governments yeah. in, in, a, in a world which has seen like the sort of easing back of the nation state as the primary yes. arbiter of authority, economic and political uh, globally, right? As it gives way to private business and to enterprise. That is bleak. No, it's true though. It's, I mean, you're right. I think that it hits it on the head is that they're really about globalization and it, it, they're about different types of, you know, that um, ultimately violence and and appropriative power and uh and, and economic power are more and more being dispersed across borders and being able to be sort of marshaled in in along different dimensions i mean terrorism is also a sort of transnational uh phenomenon crosses borders um and so you know they i think both movies do really present that they are sort of uh 
more or less explicitly about uh, about globalization and, and the exercise of power in, in a globalized world. That was a it's point. also interesting that the solution that both of these movies comes up with um, to you know. Uh, Power is now kind of floating around. The nations aren't doing it anymore. Who should have it? And they come up with, like, the philosopher king, that groups of people, whether they're corporations or terrorist groups, can't be trusted. But Tony Stark can, and Batman can. Is he a philosopher king, or is he an enlightened despot? It's the same thing, isn't it? Um, I suppose, except for um, except that a philosopher king is has his position by virtue of his uh, predisposition towards doing the things that are necessary for leading, right? Whereas uh, an enlightened despot uh, sort of doesn't necessarily have his power because he's good at using his power. Um, he has his power through realpolitik, right? He has his power through well. Is it real politics? That's pre-real politics, but it's it's through the exercise of his power that he gains dominance, and then it's through the fact that he has the power that he then develops the responsibility for using it. So, for example, the philosopher king wouldn't go out there in a jetpack and fight a bunch of people. He would get a warrior to go do it because it's the philosopher king's nature to um, to, to sort of set the rules and, and to to think for people. Whereas, like the enlightened despot, you know, Catherine the Great, she you know. You know Maria Theresa, any of these people, you know Frederick Wilhelm the uh, Third, they can go out there and 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 mix it up. They can send their troops out there because they have a warrior nature as well as uh, a more sort of contemplative nature. They use jetpacks all the time, <laughs> especially Catherine that, the Great. That's uh, actually great. That's actually how Catherine the Great died. It was a jetpack yeah, crash. It, it's it's a little known. Uh, they obscured it. They photoshopped it out of all the official documents. The the Russians, they're crazy like that. <laughs> anyway. But yeah, I'm um, looking at this. Ross Perot, uh, just prior to the 1979 Iranian Revolution, the government of Iran imprisoned two of his employees. Perot organized and sponsored a successful rescue. The rescue team was led by retired U.S. Army Special Forces Colonel Arthur D. Bull Simmons. When the team could not find a way to extract the prisoners, they decided to wait for a mob of pro-Ayatollah revolutionaries to storm the jail and free all 10,000 inmates, many of whom were political prisoners. The two prisoners then connected with the rescue team, and the team spirited them out of Iran via a risky border crossing into Turkey. Someone made a movie about that? Uh, apparently, yeah. It's a, well, they definitely oh, really? made a, uh, a miniseries. They made huh. a, a miniseries. Uh, it's a, there's a book called On Wings of Eagles, um, which is sort of similar to Batman when you think about it. This sort of uh, the totem beast that, uh, <laughs> that we become, the, the, the way that we sort of ex- uh, become something other than human when we exercise this kind of, this kind of, uh, of boldness in the world, I suppose. Um, that is interesting. I mean, the parallels with the both the Tony Stark and uh, and uh, Batman example there are are pretty strong. Of it's a sort of the will of an individual uh, capitalist uh, to sort of subvert the the general recognized boundaries of the state system. That's, I mean, there's a different. Don't you think there's a different relationship? No, I'm sorry. As I take that, as I take that, I take that back. Actually, as the thoughts coming out of my mouth, they have exactly the same rep- relationship to state power, except yeah. one at the municipal level and one at the federal, at the mm-hmm. national level. Well, and and, right. and the Dark Knight, really. I mean, I, I think that was, to my knowledge. I mean, I don't know the uh, the history of the Batman series well. Like, what is the precedent in like the other Batman works for Batman actually crossing this jurisdiction? Because even though he, you know, I, what I thought was unusual is that usually he works. You know, in this extra legal way, but within the bounds of Gotham. And so I thought that this was interesting because he really goes to another jurisdiction and tries to say, like, the whole world is my jurisdiction. I don't know, is there a precedent for Batman abroad in. I, mean, I can't think of it in the prior movies. Uh, I don't know. Well, there's Batman Beyond, but that's entirely different. And think of the. <laughs> think, of the think of the representation of the Asian country in the movie. It's just as the cops are bought and paid for. Mm-hmm. 
it's just as corrupt as Gotham. And it's actually, it is kind of a transnational corporation, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. that, that, that sort of harbors this, you know, this, what is he essentially a money laundering guy like it, yeah. for mm-hmm. the mob. Uh, though he like can abscond with their money, so it seems like he has some sort of authority over. Well, I don't even fucking know. Um, right? It's a. Uh, it's even there. It's just as bad. And in a world, in a world where the social order is breaking, broken down, I think any terrain where the social order is broken down is Batman's jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. It's that, that wherever there's a baby crying, he'll be there. <laughs> <laughs> What really makes it weird for me is is not that he goes to Hong Kong and, like, beats some guys up. I mean, I, I feel like I'm not sure if I've actually seen that, what, uh, but it doesn't seem that strange. What's really strange is that what he does is he goes, he takes the guy out, and then he hands him to the police. Says, all right, here's the guy that you, that you guys wanted. If you just took him back to the Batcave and, like, roughed him up and then put him on a boat back to China, it would seem much less kind of eerie and... Uh, uncomfortable to me than it does. So, the so it's the is, fact like, that the, the Gotham Police Department is pretty much okay with like, oh, look, like this guy just happened to show up on our doorstep. Well, what a what a lucky coincidence. We're just gonna... Da, da, yeah. da, da, da. Both that they're okay with it and that Batman is okay with like, with, you know, violating the sovereignty of a nation in order to help the cops. I mean, usually yeah. he sort of does the cops' job for them. He doesn't act as a you know, an arm of the police department. I will say the the most, uh, the biggest stretch of disbelief for me in that movie is that um, if a Chinese citizen disappears from China, is kidnapped, ends up in a U.S. jail, was taken out with a technology, they specifically say, developed by the CIA, that that does not start an international incident and perhaps a war. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. I mean, it was Batman. We don't control Batman. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully that's what the sequel's about. The, the, uh, the, the, the next film is actually about like the, the world war between China and the United States started by Batman. There is an axis of Batman that we need to fight against. <laughs> We're going to wage a war on Batman. Uh, the, um, the, this actually is very similar to uh, not so much Jack Bauer, but an episode of The Shield where they do the same thing with a Mexican drug dealer who had been living in California for a while. They follow him to Mexico. They kidnap him. They bring him back, and, he, and they act as if he was in California the whole time, and they arrest him. I mean it seems like this is, a, this is becoming more and more a really prominent trope of our popular culture. Well, I mean, it's scary because I don't know if you heard in the news, but you know, there are papers that come out that say that the White House has developed techniques and like made choices based on things they see on Twenty Four. Like, like this has become like a sort of art imitates life, imitates art kind of cycle, where people create this stuff and, and people recognize it and see, oh, like people can are capable of accepting this now. The morality of people has changed in such a way, or was different from how we originally expected to such a way that that we can do this now, and then that reinforces itself and and it snowballs. I mean, yeah, I definitely think that you're seeing more sort of good guys um, going outside the rules, but at the same time i mean the that general trope has been around forever it's just different sorts of rules i think part of it is that um we've we've sort of cycled our taboos out like it used to be if you had a good guy who broke all the rules it was because he like had long hair and he smoked you know like if you had a good guy who broke all the rules it's because he was like having you know sex you know like we know those rules are not as strong anymore so now the rules what other rules are there well there's the geneva convention (laughs) so (laughs) you know now this is basically fun 
you know, except Fonzie is a terrorist instead of, and, uh, a, instead of a cool greaser. A minor, minor spoiler in Watchmen is going to be coming out, and there you have the guy who's like, he's a bad guy, he's a good guy, but he breaks all the rules, and like the big rule that he breaks is a giant racist, right? The, the Rorschach character. Uh, oh yeah, there's a lot of. I mean, there's a lot of different things that he does. But uh, is this? I mean, is it? I mean, sure, Pete. Okay, I buy that it's been. You know, that it's been around forever. It's all over Shakespeare, for example. Yeah, exactly. As you know, as yeah. just just for one. But like, I I guess the rules are sort of different. You know, the rule against sort of torturing and killing another person, or I I don't know. I mean, I guess I, you know, I guess one of the Richards does that, and you know. Some of the some Shakespeare villains do that, but like I was going to make a kind of existential slash psychological argument that this is like a response to a perceived loss of agency for you know just for your average person in a in an increasingly complex postmodern globalized world, and that these all these figures uh, are sort of fantasy versions of what we really wish we could do. You know, how we yeah. sort of wish we could, I mean, you know, because one thing, say what you will about Batman, he knows how to cut through the red tape. I'll tell you, I'll say, I say that you're dead on, and I'll say that one place you can look for that exact pattern happening is in the uh, antebellum South, right before the Civil War. Huh. Um, when you see people responding to the way that the world is changing, the expansion of trade, the way that their culture feels under attack, the way that other people seem to be leaving them behind um, by increased scapegoating. You know, and, and and specifically, you know, posse's and, and and vigilante justice and 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 unsanctioned executions. People yeah. feeling that by somehow doing extreme things themselves, that somehow it's their own uh, sense of helplessness. It, it becomes overcome. And, and yes, you don't feel helpless anymore. But at the same time, you're not really attacking the things that have taken away your power. You're just t taking it on somebody else. You're just bullying somebody. You know, like like when you know Eric Roberts, you know, isn't gonna isn't killing your girlfriend. You know, like Eric Roberts might be a douchebag, but like holding him over the railing and like trying to bust up his legs isn't really gonna solve the larger problems of the helplessness of uh, of um, Gotham either. They're not gonna change the the stop the cops from being corrupted. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of sad to think that you're scapegoating a mobster, but I mean, it's because it's a movie that he's a mobster. If this weren't a movie, he very well might just be some random cab driver who's in the wrong place at the wrong time. But you know what? It's a it's a psychological move that you really understand because it's a reification. You know, I can't yeah. I can't. I can't make the institutions less corrupt, but I can yeah. bust this guy's kneecaps, mm -hmm. you know? And so he's kind of a proxy for the, for the larger picture. So it's, so, the, it's the anti-immigration movement. Right. Also. Well, yeah. right. And Pete, your point, your point that it really doesn't help. Yeah. Uh, I mean, your point is well taken, but in a way it doesn't matter. Right. Because it feels good on a certain level. But see, that's that's the, the question is that, is it, you know, you can read it both ways. On one hand we could say, well, you know, at least we're like, Getting this, you know, we can we can sort of uh, supplement all of these desires in like in Jack Bauer and in Batman, and and so thus we don't have to go out and torture people ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, or you or you could read it the other way and say this actually contributes to um, a, like like lessening our moral outrage when we hear about these things. And I'm not sure; I, it probably cuts both ways. Well, let know. me ask. I mean, this is a fucking digression to end all digressions. <laughs> but what was your reaction? to the Abu Ghraib pictures. I was sad. Well, I was sad too. I, I mean, I was horrified by a lot of what I saw and I, you know, but I also thought like, do we not know what happens in war? 
like in the news in and in in our sort of storytelling in our arts and media like and just in in documentary and reportage on Vietnam on the first Gulf War uh, you know we we've seen this kind of thing happen again and again and again and again and like why do we think that we're you know, and yes, it's wrong. It's categorically wrong, and I'm horrified by it. But but I'm not surprised by it. Well, I, 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 I really do. Oh, you go ahead, Jordan. I've talked enough for a bit. Well, I was wondering um, with that whether it might be the fact that it's specifically in a prison camp. That I mean, we know that horrible things happen in war. Some of them are committed by Americans. We kind of thought that torturing prisoners like we have a very specific place that that happens it's the holocaust and that was not us like we were the good guys on that one and like you know somehow americans should be above that because it's just you know it's, it's a little separate category i mean i, I do th- i mean i do think that to say that that abu ghraib is not in any way a departure from what americans have always been doing i don't think that's right i mean i definitely think that we've treated our prisoners of war pretty pretty well and i think that this is heartbreaking experience because it was it was a betrayal of the legacy of people who did make sacrifices in terms of not feeding those appetites for sort of base um, you know, uh, just just putrefaction of human dignity. Just sure, like, or like, yeah. yeah, placing a principle, right? Placing a principle above an immediate gain. I mean, I think there are people who say, well, once you're in a war, it's silly to start talking about having principles like that, like don't torture people. Like once people are dying, all the gloves come off. And I mean, I don't know. I, I think that there's an element of the American national character that even if it's in denial most of the time, that, that tells you you shouldn't do these things. I think that's good. You know, and I think that that it's good, and it's not a good thing that we think it's okay to torture people. That's not a good thing that we think it's okay that that Jack Bauer straps somebody down with electrodes and zaps them. And I also don't think it's something that always happened. You know, and I do think it marks a change. Um, but at the same time, yes, we're capable of brutality, and and yes, it's something that has been in our culture in one way or the other. And it is a loss to see it go. I, I will say that. Um, and I'm, I'm, you know. Obviously, we don't want to grandstand about it politically, but right. you know, but it, I, so. I think in a more sort of like empirical or theoretical way, I think that um, there's a lot of research that's showing that uh, limited war is actually much more the norm, like in the sort of grand sweep of history, than is total war. I mean, this is exactly what uh, Clausewitz uh, was. Uh, Clausewitz was uh, really preoccupied with. Um, because what he was seeking to explain is as the type of warfare and the change in warfare that was uh, going on in Europe, uh, sort of following the French Revolution, and in which there really was a sort of uh, to- totality of warfare that that had not been seen before. So I think that, like, um, I would say that you know it was like, Abu Ghraib was shocking because um, a lot of the war, you know, wars that America had fought had been limited wars in, in specific ways, and I think there is something that having to do with. There's a, definitely a correlation between the sort of levels of brutality and the sort of totality of war and like sort of like degree of cultural difference. I mean, you know, looking at American uh, like actions and uh, use of violence in the European theater of World War II versus the um, the uh, the Pacific theater, uh, I think there's a totally uh, a different vibe and there's a totally different type of like the the way that the em- uh, enemy was presented and the way violence was used is very different. Um, and so I think that, you know, you have, like, yes, horrible things happen in war, but, like, um, there's, like, a, usually hosts of either uh, uh, informal norms or explicit rules that, that limit the use of violence. And so I think it's really 
Um, it, I think it's not only horrifying when it when it shows up, but it is you know that is the thing to be explained. Um, I think that like hadn't Vietnam popped the cork on this? I'm thinking of the necklace of ears here. You know, well symbolically. Um, but, you know, I mean, it, certainly the symbols are out there, but there, of course there's two sides to it, right? Well, there's more than two sides to it, but, you know, there's a, a couple of different sides to it. But there's the question of, yeah, you know, there were, there were atrocities that were committed and there were people who did these bad things. Um, does this necessarily mean that people were really buying into it and thinking that it was a good thing and thinking that it was justifiable and defending it? No, um, it's that a- I don't. I think we, uh, we associated it with mental illness, right, and with madness. Um, and, right, and like, or like, yeah. or with a kind of, with a kind, of, with coming face to face with a kind of horror, with the kind of Joseph Conrad kind of horror, mm-hmm. right? And that, like, sort of staring into that darkness, staring into that heart of darkness, sort of took people to this, to this incredibly, this incredibly bad place. And I guess that's, I mean, and actually, I guess I buy that. You know what I mean? That there, that there is an explanation that is like there is an experience. There's a personal experience that is so extreme. That people become untethered from, uh, you know, people become untethered from even the most kind of basic human empathy. Yeah. And, and I guess they, one of the most horrifying. Sorry, Pete. Let me just. Like... <laughs> <laughs> I'm just. <laughs> God, I'm gonna let me finish this thought. And like one of the most, one of the most awful things to me about the Abu Ghraib thing is the the official response is the few bad apples. Mm-hmm. Read, you know what I mean? Read on it. Rather than, you know what I mean, there were like rotten institutions forcing people into yeah. sort of rotten positions right. and then they behaved in a rotten way. Right. Whereas, because that's more, I mean, um, what I've read of what Errol Morris has written. Right. And, uh, I haven't seen his film yet, but he's written, I think he did a New Yorker piece. Um, and uh, what, I've, what I've read by him, I think he takes that approach much more and that's much more in line with his usual... Uh, as usual, tag and that's kind of where he went in Thin Blue Line and also in uh, in uh, Fog of War. So yeah, I think that the, I think you're totally right. I was I was just going to say that sometimes when you look into that heart of darkness and you see a bat that's flying at you, <laughs> <laughs> and you think that's how I'm going to do it, that's how I'm going to fight for justice. And then, um, and then the question becomes: Well, what kind of rules of engagement do you use in the Catwoman theater? I mean, it gets very complicated. <laughs> are you are you trying to segue us back? <laughs> yeah, I guess we've gotten. I mean, in a way, we've gotten very far from the topic of Batman. But, but can I, I think, can I bring this back to Batman? Please, because, <laughs> please, can you? Can you? Yes, I can. Because when I was watching uh, the Dark Knight, I actually thought about Apocalypse Now. Huh. Um, and and is specifically in the scene. Uh, there's this interesting scene um, that actually not. It's, the, but it's an the, urban jungle. It is no, absolutely. Um, it is, and it's you know what? It's shot like an urban jungle. No, for sure. But like you know, you see the parallel because Michael Caine, Alfred, gives this sort of seemingly non sequitur speech about when he was in Burma uh, working with uh, with, oh, sure. the, with with the local government for the colonial powers, um, and you know he talks about the bandit that's stealing the rubies. Uh, just to sort of watch the world burn. And, uh, that's where I think they're, you know, it seems like a kind of silly story, but you sort of see the uh, the parallels between a sort of, you know, late colonialism and the sort of uh, the, the late capitalist city. And you sort of have a ruling class uh, trying to impose order uh, on, on something that is uh, by all means... And the solution is total war. Yeah. Is burn the forest <laughs> down. Yeah. 
So you think the plot of the latest Rambo movie is a silly story? You're gonna have to enlighten us. Uh, spoiler alert: the latest Rambo movie. Oh, just the the Rambo movie. It took place in in, in Myanmar, right? And he and it's a bunch of Christian oh, missionaries right. going to Myanmar, and Rambo is like down there and has just been like messing around with people this whole time or something. I don't know. Um, so like Rambo actually, actually is the man that Michael Caine is talking about in that yes, anecdote. Yeah. <laughs> pretty, pretty much, exactly. Yeah, like that's like the, the – like we're seeing a lot of weird repetitions this summer. Like Indiana Jones hiding in the fridge. Like Wally finding the last plant, plant on Earth living in the fridge. You know, you've got like Michael Caine. <laughs> hey, I didn't see Wally yet. Fuck. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan's walked out of the room. <laughs> so, spo- my favorite spo- There's this great scene in Wally where Wally uh, gets up on a little shelf and he curls up in a little ball. He reaches his little robot arm out and he grabs onto the f- floor of his little space pod or whatever his little home. It's not a space pod; he's on Earth. And he pushes himself, and the shelf rocks, and he rocks himself to sleep. And I, I just lost it. I thought that was so cute. <laughs> so, <laughs> wow. I'm sorry. I'm a big softy when it comes to these things. My, my girlfriend laughed at me. It was pretty funny. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. I guess I guess while we're all I mean, I guess while we're all sort of emasculating ourselves, I should say that I <laughs> <laughs> that I saw Mamma Mia last night. Holy crap, that's a let's uh, dropping a nuke on us. <laughs> so you gotta you have to write the philosophy of Mamma Mia post. <laughs> <laughs> Are we seeing a, a Jack Bowerization of ABBA? <laughs> well, I think that of engagement in Dancing Queen. You know, actually, you, Jordan, to, you, you, you to... joke, but did you read the Anthony Lane review of that in the New Yorker? It's, it talks about ABBA as a form of torture banned <laughs> under the Geneva Convention. Nice, nice. He is so witty. That guy is so witty. <laughs> oh, come on, man. Who the hell are you? <laughs> that New Yorker writer, he's he's so witty. He's just so witty. I actually really like Anthony Lynn. I usually read him, you know, right. no matter what. Have we over-talked Batman? I mean, has Batman fatigue set in? The movie now stands to make, you know, it's just shy at the moment as we record this of $400 million domestic gross. It's gonna, it's definitely gonna become the number two to, within a week, it'll probably be the number two to Titanic. And it could surpass Titanic. Uh, I mean, it could surpass Titanic by the early fall. Mm. Are we, I mean, there's all this talk about, uh, well, we'll get to it in a minute, actually. All this talk about, you know, what yet another uh, follow-up movie would look like. But, you know, is it really possible to catch that lightning in a bottle again? It seems like a lot of things came together, really. I mean, a lot of stars aligned to make this Batman movie, you know, really good. Well, I mean, I, I'm, are you saying whether or not you can see another another box office like this? Uh, because, I mean, the prequels to Star Wars were, were ranking up there. I mean, but Star Wars Episode One is still ahead by the numbers I'm looking at of The Dark Knight by a good solid $35 million. Um, and that movie was, was you know, brick shithouse. And then, uh, you know, you got Star Wars That's Episode That's a good three. thing, actually, Pete. Oh, it is? <laughs> it was actually a, wooded, a plywood and terry cloth shithouse. <laughs> so, wait, so what you like, make the shithouse out of affects whether it's a good or a bad thing? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, okay. you want your shithouse to be solid. You don't want it to be blowing blowing over when the big bad. Will, uh, I'm not sure where that went, but. <laughs> but so, okay, so a shithouse is bad. So that movie was in the yeah. shithouse. That's if it's in All the right. shithouse, okay. it's bad. Okay. Yes. yes. Okay. Got it. All right. So yeah. So um. So yeah. By this um. 
it looks like by the thing I'm looking at, yeah, it would need to make a little a lot more money. I mean, are you saying whether people are going to stay interested in Batman? Um, because it, there was a there were a couple years between. Batman Begins in this. I mean, it's been around, kicking around for a little while, so presumably there'll be a few years between this and the next one for people to kind of cool off, and they'll have to figure out a new way of getting us all reinterested, right? I guess so. I mean, has I, it seems impossible, though, with a follow-up to this, to win the expectations game. Well, yeah, totally. Well, I mean, this movie, with the whole Heath Ledger thing, and the death of Heath Ledger, and the, the sort of uh, uh, people coming together around that, that has boosted this movie's word of mouth, which has been largely responsible for, uh, you know, the, the box office keeping up this much. I mean, the thing that really makes box office uh, numbers keep up week after week is not the marketing. It's not even the quality movie. It's how much people like it, right? It's how much they tell each other to go see it and, and the, the strength of that and the communities that build around these movies. Um, I don't necessarily think you're going to see a Batman movie pull together these, this kind of sympathy, this kind of like – and I mean sympathy in the old sense, sympathy in the sense of mutual emotional experience because um, Batman movies, I mean – well, first of all, they, they don't skew young. <laughs> I mean brutal Batman movies don't skew young. Um, you're not necessarily going to get a ton of kids, right? Which in all of the top movies um, except for Titanic were all for kids. Um, you know, you got Star Wars and that, which skews real wealth for children. Shrek Two, E.T. You know, you got you know, it, it's it's Pirates of the Caribbean. You know, uh, Two is up there, and that's a movie that children can see. And and you have to consider that they're a big part of the movie going public. And if you make a brutal Batman movie about you know that in uh, you know three years I'm going to be writing a post about Kierkegaard and Batman, like yeah. is that is that really what is going to be needed to to break that at that point? You know, ten trillion dollar barrier because of like crazy hyperinflation or something i don't know you know uh, dark knight was pg-13 that was that's a strong pg-13 yeah that's a hard pg-13 right i mean i guess there's no real gore right and there's well, less gore there is aaron eckhart's face is pretty extreme you know i mean he's a handsome man but you know what i'm talking about <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah yeah you mean all that? that that was cg too but yeah i know what you mean i know what you mean that was pretty raw um, but, but yeah, even some of the brutal stuff scary. is not shown, right? Like, like you yeah. discussing the magic pe pencil post, like you don't actually see the spurting blood or anything. A lot of it's, I mean, I think a lot of it would, that would be disturbing to children is what's is is what it does to your imagination. It's Hitchcockian in yeah. that sense, where yeah. he'll show you like the just leading up or the immediate aftermath, mm -hmm. but leave the actual thing out, which is more horrifying because you fill it in yourself. Yeah, I mean, I could definitely see it inducing its fair share of nightmares. Like, yeah. Oh, that's very insightful, well, and that's yeah. also how comics work, too, right? Children are a superstitious and cowardly lot, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I was really more talking about myself. Um, <laughs> I don't even want to tell you about my, my recent nightmare involving airport security, and it was kind of Batman-esque. Batman? Um, Batman-esque. <laughs> They were trying to let you through, and they were you were doing free word association, and you were like, uh, wait a minute, I have to take off my shoes. Shoes come from a shoe store, which rhymes with floor. They're at the floor factory. Let's go. You know? <laughs> but who is at the floor factory? What villains? I guess there have been rumors about uh, the Riddler and the Penguin coming back in the person of Johnny Depp and Philip Seymour Hoffman, though those are just rumors. I'd like to see Bane. I'd like to see Bane in the next Batman movie. Bane who broke Batman's back. Well, you uh, know he was in Batman and Robin, right? Was he in any of the movies? Yeah, I... but, but he was such a freaking throwaway. It was ridiculous. Like, see, I was... didn't see Batman and Robin. 
Yeah, I mean, he they really, really pumped up the luchador aspect of Bane, which is like the very least interesting part of him. Um, they're like, and uh, yeah, he was in the thrall of Poison Ivy or something. It was really ridiculous. Played by an like, actor named Jeep Swenson. Mm, who probably is an excellent guy and has done a lot of really good work, but I sure as hell haven't seen it. So, but I think this is this I guess is a very... he was a uh, oh yeah sorry Jordan um, no no keep, keep talking about uh, about Swenson I have a, an unrelated thing he uh, he he plays a wrestler uh, called the Final Solution oh god <laughs> I take back I take what? it back <laughs> on uh, on WCW Monday Night Night oh that was like the mid nineties wow dear lord. <laughs> That's really awful. I, I, I'd like to do a, a repeat of my uh, of my Iron Man podcast call, which was when I made a suggestion that I thought was patently absurd that turned out to be true, which was that the villain of the Iron Man <laughs> sequel was going to be the Mandarin. Right. Uh, and I'm going to say that the villain of the next Batman movie should be should be King Tut. Um, yes. The, the evil. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Was, he like, was he an evil librarian that became oh, – he was a librarian that became possessed with the spirit of the pharaohs or something? I don't know. What was his deal? He's an evil, evil uh, Yale archaeology professor. Are you, are you is, serious? I, I would see this is, I, this is another thing that I added to the schedule of the podcast. What's the next Batman villain going to be? And I had, I had kind of cheated. I had looked up all of the old 60s TV show uh, villains and was like, what's the stupidest one that I can pull yeah. out to impress everyone on the podcast? And it's King Tut. Yeah. Who, is, uh, <laughs> who, who is the actor? Who's your pick for actor? Ooh. John Goodman. Well, the guy who played him in the 60s was 400 pounds. So <laughs> think about that. Um, yeah, John Goodman would be pretty good. Not to say that he—I mean—he's he's a very physically imposing presence and can camp it up a lot. But the the, uh, the character is a an archaeology professor at Yale who is cleaning some relics, and a pot falls off of a shelf and bonks him <laughs> on the head, and he wakes up possessed by the spirit of King Tut and decides he's going to recreate the Egyptian dynasty uh, in Gotham City. <laughs> So basically, yeah, that would definitely push uh, the bat- this Batman franchise into the realm of the Mummy franchise. Let's <laughs> just say it's not a good direction. Well, hey, this weekend, mummy. Yeah, the Mummy was second place to Batman this weekend. The Mummy oh, movie, God. and it's getting it's getting hideous reviews, and I'm kind of disappointed because I like the first two Mummy movies. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, Mummy Tomb of the Dragon Emperor was my backup uh, call for sleeper hit of the summer, and it's got a, uh, I feel like I've got egg on my face, because I think the Rotten Tomatoes rating has decreased in the past few days from 10% to 9%. <laughs> <laughs> we, are, we are in single digits. I would like to say an, issue an alert to, for around Tomb of the Dragon Emperor. We are in single digits, people. Pete, <laughs> <laughs> did, did you go see it? No, I did. I've, I've been busy this weekend. I had, I had shows. So I wasn't able to go really see anything. Oh, man. Uh, my 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 movie for my movie from the Providence Forty Hour Film Festival made Best of Providence. So that's exciting. Congratulations. Uh, thanks, thanks, thanks. But yeah, no, I didn't I didn't see Tomb of the Dragon Emperor. Sadly, but my main pick is still out there. My main sleeper pick hit uh, is still out there. We we still have uh, Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants two to come <laughs> out and, uh, and surprise us. I um, <laughs> I'm just gonna throw in my pick uh, for Christina Ricci as Catwoman. I mean, because oh. they're going to do Catwoman eventually. So, yeah. you know, they'll cast Ellen up Page. Christina Ellen Ricci, Page. Scarlett Johansson. <laughs> Scarlett Johansson as Catwoman might make you a couple hundred million dollars. Yeah, that might, that might boost you up there into the box office. Uh. Um, but I don't know. I mean, they thought that sexy with Catwoman was the way to go. And uh, apparently with the Halle Berry thing, not so good. 
This was actually my other idea is to do Catwoman and bring back Halle Berry and like you have it have it be in continuity with that movie. Right, right. Wow. Now, now, maybe they no should just one... try to make this the next one as horrible as possible. Like, it's not going to be as as successful as this one. They try to make it the biggest shit show possible. Like, yeah, have you, yeah. seen, you haven't seen Batman and Robin, have you? <laughs> <laughs> like I reiterate, that is a that is a what what would I mean? I guess that would be a shit house made of straw. Is that... <laughs> it's actually it's actually a bale of hay that you're instructed to take a shit underneath. <laughs> It's easy. It's like shooting fish in a barrel with a bat gun of some sort. <laughs> I, mean, I was thinking, um, you know, in context of uh, Matt's movie songs posts, what what this Batman movie is really missing is the is the big is the big hit single, you know, because prior Batman movies you had R. Kelly's Gotham City, you had Seal's Kiss from a Rose. I mean, who would have been your pick? Kiss from a Rose is from a Batman yeah, movie? Yeah, I think it's from No, a, shit. Yeah, I think it's from, from Batman, Batman Forever, Forever, if I'm not mistaken. I remember Bad. Gotham City. I sit through and listen to that. A City of Justice. City of Love. A City of Love. Yeah. Oh, a City of uh, Hold Me, Throw Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me, right? Is, uh, also from Batman. Yeah, that's from, Batman. yeah mm-hmm. that, was a, that was a pretty blockbuster soundtrack. So who would have been your pick to do the big, uh, the big Batman, uh, the big Dark Knight uh, hit single uh, for, for this summer? Aaron Neville. Toby Keith. <laughs> Actually, get it, get Kenny Chesney out there. Sing, hey, uh, oh, I'm a Batman. I don't know. Um, no, actually, seriously, um, get a uh, – what are the kids listening to these days? Nods. <laughs> uh, get, oh, get that Pete Wentz fellow. Get that guy with the rock and roll, that guy to do it. Um, I don't know. I would love to hear a hip-hop song. That would have been fun. L- uh, Lil Wayne. <laughs> yeah, Lil Wayne doing a Batman song. That would have been sweet. Soldier you Boy. Know? He must be uh, – I know, I haven't listened to it. What is it? I mean, Soldier Boy doing Batman that ho. Yeah, Batman that ho. What what does it mean to Batman that ho? Uh, It's it's just a torture. (laughs) She tells you where the, uh, where where the, where the, uh... And you've proven my point that this podcast jumped the shark about It's actually swimming with the sharks. (laughs) It's Shark Week, ladies and gentlemen. It's Shark, actually, it's the end of Shark Week. So we all can be very sad. Uh, Thank you for listening Uh, to the podcast. We are over overthinkingit.com www.overthinkingit.com uh, more posts coming out this week uh, stay stay tuned for a, uh, uh, a rundown by me of uh, Huey Lewis's best mo- mo- uh, moments on film um, I'm, I'm, I've been having that one on the hopper for a little while it's going to be real it's going to knock it out of the box and I'm, I'm working on something about spoilers and about the relationship of surprise to sort of enjoyment of of uh, artistic Products and what he's gonna say is that it doesn't matter. For us. <laughs> I get <laughs> spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Jesus. And Pete oh, yeah. has Pete has something in the hopper. Pete has something that um, uh, it's not scheduled yet, but it's coming out this week. But it's kind of a surprise, so you'll have to you'll have to though go back and check out the tailspin. Uh, go back and check out ah. Pete Fenzel's brilliant tailspin <laughs> post from from a couple weeks ago. It's called um, it's called a sneak peek into the dream factory. If you want to track it down, a sneak peek. All right, uh, Pete. Thanks for joining us. You're welcome, Jordan. Talk. Pleasure you know, to have goodbye. you. Pleasure to be here. Uh, so <laughs> thanks everyone for being here. www.overthinkingit.com. Uh, we'll see you on the flip side. God, that was dumb. <laughs>